This is the Voicing Creativity Podcast, Voicing Creative Research. I'm Shannon Vickers, professor in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Winnipeg, where I teach somatic approaches to voice and performance and engage in interdisciplinary arts-based research. This first season of the Voicing Creativity Podcast focuses on voicing creative research. Each episode showcases the prolific and inspiring work of some of Canada's leaders across the humanities, highlighting their creativity in research, pedagogy, and artistic practice. Today's episode is the second half of our conversation with Dr. Cheryl Thompson. You know, when the Trudeau situation happened, for example, with blackface and because mm-hmm. I've been doing the research, it's like I suddenly became, it's like I was in everybody's media junket. It's like Cheryl Thompson was just everywhere, <laughs> right? I couldn't believe it. My grade four teacher sent me an email. <laughs> and she was like, first, I, I can't, I didn't know, I didn't register that it was my grade four. They were just like, did you go to this school in in like 1982 were you in this school and da 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 and then I saw the name and I was like Mrs. Brown (laughs) (laughs) I understand I didn't know her first name because I was like six or seven like I have no idea what her actual first name was so when she was when she emailed and then left her name I was like obviously I'm not going to register your first name because I actually never knew what it was I only know you by your, 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 your married name or whatever your, your last name. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. And she said, she said, she said, you know what? I saw you on the TV. I couldn't remember your name, but I remembered your smile. And, she, and the thing, she went down into the basement and understand interesting family. I'm a twin. My older brother and sister are also twins. Oh, so wow. Down, probably taught all of us. Oh, so, went back into the box and she was like i recognize that f- smile that's a family smile <laughs> and so she found us like and she kept all her all the school photos she had them she Aww. said she found the thompson smile and she How beautiful so again that's obviously not something i've worked on so my public persona it's just something that it's not even a persona it's just my internal self being presented to the public in an authentic way because here you go my grade three or four teacher even recognized it and that was 40 years ago oh I love that I love that (laughs) so you've reminded me of some of the great teachers I had in grade school too you know who I've been in touch with over the last couple of years of the pandemic oddly you know just randomly got in touch with my own grade four teacher so yeah it's amazing how life works like that yeah, and even though I teach at university, there are students that I still think about. Mm-hmm. Like I like they they left a mark. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a privilege to be a teacher and to witness growth in a student. And yeah, to see them grow. And I know one student recently that were friends on Facebook. I, I couldn't believe it. It's like, God, I've known you almost ten years. <laughs> but I think I think they're they're like almost and they're like in their late they're like in their late twenties now and they're and they've lived they've had so many adventures and I was like, God, I can't believe like I've seen you grow. <laughs> it's like a weird thing. It's like yeah, I've seen you grow and develop, but I still the funny thing is, it's like what I remember of them is is their words. It's like I remember their expression. Yeah. Like, course and what they did and 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 how I saw them change mm-hmm. like the course and it's interesting because conversely there's those students that you teach that that don't change at all just... yeah the penny may drop at a different time I think I was like that in my undergrad you know I kind of wasn't um, as sort of in a transformation as I was in my graduate degree um, so I often think yeah if people are kind of you know, on a plateau for a bit, the pennies may drop later. And um, yeah, yeah, you never, you just never know, right? Every little bit that we, that we do can add up to something. It's just who knows when the, uh, you know, the popcorn kernel will pop, so to speak. (laughs) I mean, it's just like I'm saying about the timeline, right? That we're Mm -hmm. all on a different timeline. Absolutely. We don't know what that timeline is. 
and we certainly don't know how it's going to affect us. Like, you know, everybody gets affected by things differently. And, you know, in my life, you know, maybe it's partly being born on the Ides of March. <laughs> I'm born March. <laughs> so that's, you know, if you know, historically, that's like the Ides of March. Um, I will never forget that now. Just so yeah, you know, you'll yeah. be getting an email from me. <laughs> totally fine. I, and, and funny enough, my twin even said this about me. And it's true. It's something that I've had to grow into it because when I was younger, it would have, it would really bother me as much as I seem like quote unquote normal and all the stuff. The truth is I actually am a, a polarizing figure. I really am. There are people that absolutely love me. I take you, I put you in that camp, right? Love. Oh my goodness. They, uh, they can't see any flaw. Like you're talking about, like they just see, they see my light. Mm -hmm. They see me in my wholeness. Mm -hmm. Split down the middle is the other camp that think I'm the worst human that ever walked the earth. I'm full of myself. I'm arrogant. Who do I think I am? Stay in my lane. I shouldn't be here. Oh, I no. Stay in your lane. Oh, oh, yeah. There's a lot of oh. that. Literally, almost at equal measure, those two pillars <laughs> exist in my life. And I realize why they exist. And I realize why this narrative has followed me around my whole life, really. And it's because... I refuse, I simply refuse to take somebody's I can't as my own. Oh, I, I love that. So somebody, that. you can't do that. Bye. Yeah. I, I, I can't even hear you. I put my headphones on. So that person is not going to like me. <laughs> I just refuse. Anybody who tries to impose their own narrative for, about me onto me, I just refuse it. I Biblically, they say I rebuke it. I really uh -huh. do send it right back. And obviously, that is a controlling type of person. They're not going to like me. Of course not. And, and I accept that they don't like me, and it's okay. Like I, yeah. I got to a point where when I was younger, it wasn't right. You'd be like, why do they don't like me? And you think you got to do all this stuff to like convince them that you're a good person. And now I realize they don't like you because you are the person who you are. <laughs> and you're choosing freedom. You're choosing creativity. Yeah. You're choosing innovation. You're choosing, hey, you know what? I can do this and also this and bring them together and create something new. Yes. You know? And the reason I rebuke those people is because... I have the self-awareness of I actually never say I can't to myself, right? I never tell myself that I can't do something. So when someone else tells me that I can't do something, it, it, it obviously it's like a contradiction. I'm not limiting myself, but you're limiting me. Well, the, something's got to give. And I've learned many years ago, I choose me. I love every, that. Every single time. Okay. One of the things that you said at uh, the first webinar that I went to that I had a chance to hear your work was uh, beyond the peer-reviewed article, Creative Approaches to Research Dissemination. And um, I actually took notes. I, I attended that and I was like, oh, this is going to be exciting. And I had just seen it advertised, I think, you know, earlier that day. And so I said to my partner, you know, you watch the kids. I'm going to go upstairs and watch this over the dinner hour. And as everybody was sharing, I was like, oh, my gosh, I have to take notes. This is so brilliant. And I kept what you said written on my bulletin board next to my computer. It's still there, Dr. Thompson. And you said, what did I say? <laughs> you said, I can't be contained within the bounds, boundaries of academia. Um, I just loved that. I thought this is this is totally the message that I wanted to hear right now. Um, and I, I wondered if you could speak to that because, um, you know, I think sometimes we're in an academic institution and we're expected to do a particular kind of work. And I'm thinking about all of my colleagues that I hope that this podcast serves. What what do you sort of see as the boundaries of academia and how do you feel that, you know, you are sort of rebuking or resisting those boundaries and instead choosing creativity well, I mean, I could just go back to that article I told you about in 2015. 
that was a, def a definitive article in, in on Canadian history. And yet, by the time flash forward to 2017, when I was applying for jobs and looking, I couldn't get hired in history departments. Not to name call, but the University of Toronto, they said no to everything. Oh, Every geez. application I submitted was a no. Even when I submitted an application and got a job talk in what you would think would have been a perfect fit, given beauty in a box, it was cross-appointment in, in women and gender studies and historical studies. Doesn't that seem like what an amazing pairing? Yeah, well, that was a sham interview. That was just a joke. They had no real intention of ever hiring me. And so... I'm sorry. No, no, no. Again, my story ends well. Of course. All of those things were just porting me to the point, to the fact that I think what I realized about myself that is kind of out of bounds, sometimes, sometimes you are just out of bounds. It doesn't mean that you're better than anyone or you're, you're like a genius. I don't mean it in that sense. It's just that na like to use the universe as a metaphor, like navigation, navigationally, you are out of bounds with the mass or the majority of people's understanding of what's possible. The majority of people's understanding of what's possible is to work with what's in front of them. Absolutely. Right. To do what mm -hmm. other people are doing. To, if you want to work in a history department, you have to get a PhD in history, obviously, and then look for history jobs. Like that is in, in, in aligned with the current universe as it has been existing in the academic world for what, two, 300 years. Yes. We're expected to reproduce disciplinary norms. We're expected to, yeah. you know, keep doing iterations of similar, you know, form and quality. That's and, right. Yeah. Understand the canon, work mm -hmm. within it. Mm -hmm. You can even, you can critique the canon, but you still have to work within it, right? It has mm -hmm. to be, it has to be the locus, the center, even of critique, it still has to be your center. Mm -hmm. Whereas here comes someone like me and I'm out of bounds. I, I don't fit that narrative. So it means, you know, when I was looking, when I was actively applying for jobs in 2016 and 2017, and then in the 2018 cycle, when I finally did get hired, hired all the quote unquote, uh, traditional departments that I had applied to that you would think fit, I just never got the time of day. I never even got an interview, hardly got even a response, nothing. And then here came the job that I ended up getting for and working in for three years until I, mm -hmm. I can talk about why I left that. I have no people are like, Oh, you shouldn't say anything until you're tenured. I don't live in shame. So I'm not going to hide the secret. I you don't, I don't give out the details, but I speak freely about decisions. If I've come to a decision in life, understand a lot has happened for me to make that decision. Cause I don't make decisions lightly. So when I saw creative industries, it was almost as if a portal had opened out of bounds. <laughs> it was an out of bounds portal because the job was so vague and didn't seem to be relying on any disciplinary training whatsoever <laughs> that I thought, oh my goodness, this is a window. This is a window where I could fit because they're not asking for a discipline. They want you to tell them what your discipline is. Perfect. I am very good at communicating what it is that I do because I'm out of bounds. Love that. Right? It was like a gift that happened. It was a window mm. of opportunity. So I took that window of opportunity. And then I, I was in that window of opportunity for, I guess it was really year two. The second year where I started to realize, oh gosh, this what I thought was an out of bounds opportunity is actually just trying to be a discipline. <laughs> it's actually just trying desperately to be just like everyone else and trying to now figure me out because I don't fit. Mm. Then once again, I was placed out of bounds in the, in the thing that I thought was a match because it seemed like it was out of bounds. Turns out it wanted to be just like the universe 
over here with a canon and a discipline and people telling you what they do and what it is. And it was just like, here I am again, realizing that I just don't fit within this universe. It's just that simple. So I had a decision to make. Do I do what most people who are in the universe are afraid to do, which is leave before you have tenure? Right. Most people, they're frightened of that idea. Oh, my God, I have to stay in because I don't want my tenure. I'm out of bounds, so I don't care about tenure. I can say that on the recording and you can really publish that. I don't care if I get tenure or not. I don't. So because I don't, I had to ask myself, am I happy here or am or am I not? And again, because I live wow. a simple, I was not happy, so I had to go. Wow. What I was happy with was the university. Mm-hmm. Generally, speaking, I was happy with the university. Even at the faculty level, I like my dean. Mm-hmm. I like the, the dean's office, the people that I've been working with. That's so crazy. I realized that the issue, so then, right? It's like a doctor doing a diagnostic test. They're trying to weed out what, it, what isn't the issue. Yeah. And so I had to weed out what wasn't the issue. The issue was just my placement in a school that seemed to not understand me. Mm. So I said, I had to go. So what did I do? I looked around and I had a colleague who was like, God, you should go to performance. And I was like, Ooh, okay. Let me look at, you know what? I'm actually, now that I realize that I, I really am a performance scholar. I've actually morphed into someone who's reinventing. What is the field of performance all about? <laughs> like, what does it mean to study performance? It doesn't and just map, mean, mapping it as well, mas- mapping the historiography, mapping the history, and it doesn't yeah. just mean it doesn't just mean acting and theater. It means thinking about performance writ large, things yes. that happen in communities, the way in which, in many ways, um, identities are performed and can be very performative. In the case of like the protests, and like I just realized, you know what. Mm-hmm. I think I might have a home in performance and then long in the short, mm-hmm. we're not going to get into the details. That's where I've landed now. And I, and I feel as if, because if we think of the, the stage, right, the stage has limits in terms of its materiality, right? It's only yes. going to be so big and the audience, the, the actual theater is, is set there's a stage in front, aisles and rows and all the stuff. But what's kind of boundless is the imagine the imagination that's going to go on within that form, right? Yes. It, 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 it's out of bounds. Like, like the act of performance is out of bounds. There, you cannot put a boundary on performance. The only thing you can bound is the, is the, is sort of where it takes place. Like it's going to take place in a certain time and space and li- all that is limited. But what happens within the space and place is limitless. And I realized, okay, I think I found a home. I think, I think this is my home. So <laughs> that's like a really metaphoric way to like, just talk about the experience of navigating myself in academia and navigating to a place that I feel like represents, even if it's just metaphorically, how I see myself as just being an out of bounds person. Thank you so much for sharing that navigation in that way. And also I love this idea of imagination without boundaries. You know, I, I feel like that, you know, you asked me at the beginning if there was a theme <laughs> through all of the uh, engagement that I've done with your publications. And I think that might be actually one of the key themes is imagination without boundaries. You know, when I um, listened and, and also read, I read uh, your second book, Uncle, Race, Nostalgia and the Politics of Loyalty. Um, I was fascinated at how you came to write that book. And I wondered if you wanted to share a short um, overview of how that you know, book evolved and also how you just, you know, found yourself with this imagination and this saying yes to come to that point where you wrote that highly rigorous and really, really awesome book. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I had, I had signed on to write that book in the summer of 2018. No, no, correction, spring. Mm -hmm. It was spring of 2018. 
and you know understand i was still editing beauty in a box so beauty in a box actually wasn't done yet oh, wow. and i signed on to write this other book and partly because i had developed a relationship with coach house books and their editorial team having mm-hmm. worked on a few other publications like for the the ward 2 that book that was the mm-hmm. sequel to the ward um, and then I did another, I did like a journal article, not a journal article. I did another article for them. So I, I'd gotten to know them and through those conversations, um, you know, they were, re- uh, especially around uncle Tom's cabin, because part of the war too, the, the chapter that I wrote for that collection was on a plate, like an mm-hmm. actual pl- uncle Tom's cabin plate that they had found at, at the, at an archeological dig. And so I was tasked with writing about the plate. And, you know, it's funny because it, in my life, I've always, um, it's always been external people who have noticed something in me that mm-hmm. have just wanted to take that further. Mm-hmm. So it was John um, Lawrence, who's the editor at Coach House Books and ended up being my editor at Spacing, spacing.ca, which I also contribute to every now and then. Um, he just noticed that when I talk about things, I just have a way of talking about them. (laughs) Like (laughs) I can make something historical that most people find boring, just seem really complicated and interesting. And so I was talking about uncle Tom's cabin and he was like, God, the way you talk about it. And then he went out and read the book. And then he mm-hmm. wanted to meet with me to kind of just go over the book because he was so surprised by the book of how um, at the same time it, it's been historicized as an anti-slavery abolitionist text. It's mm-hmm. a sentimental novel written in the style of sentimental novels of that era. So it's also like very pleading and it's making a case, but it's basically using black people to make a case, right? It's like, it's actually not. So when you read it from today's lens, you realize that the book actually probably did more harm than good. It, it's mm-hmm. not it's like, and so he wanted to understand that in a complicated, not a, he wanted me to unpack that complication. Point is we met, we spoke and the way I was talking just extemporaneously, like we're talking now about the novel, he was like, man, this is a book. <laughs> you should write a book. And what a coincidence. I'm an editor at coach house books. <laughs> so Perfect. Well, sort of That's literally what happened. We had no clear sense of what the book would be. I did write a man, a proposal and sketched it out based on the reading that I had done, because I'd also done a lot of reading about, mm-hmm. I want to, you're going to write a book about something, read all the other books that's been written on the topic. And if you tell mm-hmm. me there's never been a book written, you're lying. <laughs> there's been something written, right? Mm-hmm. So read it. I read everything there was about Uncle Tom's Cabin every book. And what I noted, what the gap, that's how you're going to know about the gap. What I said to him in the book proposal and what I wrote was that nobody's ever looked at the way in which this archetype that started as a fictional character in a book has actually been made real through various shifting forms. First, it was the theater then it was film, radio, cartoon animation, um, politics. Then it entered the realm of sports. Then it entered politics, capital P. Like nobody's ever actually looked at how it shape shift shifted from 1852 to the present. Mm-hmm. That's the book that I want to write. And Uncle is a reflection of that narrative that was actually very clear to me even when we had sat down and had that initial coffee together. Ooh, I love hearing that. Thank you. For I sharing. just didn't know. Yeah. I just didn't know how, what it was actually going to look like, but the, the, the basic form, that's the amazing part of that book. Uncle really didn't change from our initial, tell me your thoughts on uncle Tom's cabin. <laughs> that is fascinating. What a great read it was. Thank you so and much. That's for why I love that. uncle. I love uncle so much because uncle is me such too. a different, it's a different book to beauty in a box, right? It's like, but if you know, I would say what I'm beginning to realize about myself that it's still written in the Cheryl Thompson style. Yes. There's, there's something to like, now that I've done two, I can kind of compare it. There's still a tone to uncle that is like, and I've had people say this to me. Someone described it as me being a tour guide through history. 
it does feel like that as a reader, you know, that I'm, I'm actually remembering things that I lived through that I forgot, you know, I mean, in one of the books, and I can't remember which one, you go through a lot of television and yes, different yes, shows. Yes. And I swear, 98% of them were shows that I grew up watching repeatedly. Yes. And I thought, oh, I forgot all about that show. Yes, Sunday yes, afternoons, yes. And you, you know, know what I did in writing oh. even more so than Beauty in a Box, I went back to... I was able, and this is, I wrote that book through the pandemic, which was also like such a catch 22 because through the pandemic, they started to digitize so much more stuff. So I was able to find online, like the original TV guide review of the Cosby show. Oh, <laughs> okay. wow. Not what we think people thought of the Cosby show, but what the critics actually thought of Bill Cosby in 1984. And it wasn't good. It was actually negative. <laughs> Even though everyone now is like, everybody loved the Cosby show. No, they did not. I So I found like the, like I went back to the original media culture of that time to explain it. And even when I talk about the civil rights movement, I remember I found an amazing Ebony magazine article about the civil rights movement written in like 1969. That's very critical, critical of everyone and i'm like oh my gosh this and so that's why i always that's why i love archives you got to go to the source and then so what i tried to do in uncle was present you the story the way it would have been presented at the time not the way we remember it like uh... so if you want to if, if anyone wants to read uncle spoiler alert <laughs> i mean please read whole, it it's fabulous but the whole argument of that book is we don't know the past because of nostalgia Yes. You just don't know it. You only know it when you spend time reviewing what people were talking about at the time. Mm -hmm. And, and under, to understand Uncle Tom's Cabin, you can't, from today's lens, read Uncle Tom's Cabin and say, I don't know what all the controversy was about. I thought it was a great book. This is where the time traveling is so important. You've you taken... have to go back to the what they would call sort of sectional conflicts of the 1930s of the 1830s, 40s and 50s to understand Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah. That's the reason why Abraham Lincoln said Harriet Beecher Stowe is the reason we had a civil war. <laughs> okay. That's why he credited that book with the civil war. Okay. So, and you're thinking, why would he give so much power to a book? Well, because the book was the TV culture of the time. Mm -hmm. And how are you going to know that unless you go back to the 1840s and 50s? And then how are you going to know that that book was really one of the first books that had so many illustrations? Mm, why do they, again, though, why do the illustrations matter in an 1852 novel? Because most of the Western world is not literate. Mm -hmm. It's only a certain class of people and race of people who are fully literate so now let's think about the power of a book to reach the quote-unquote illiterate masses through images mm -hmm. that's why that book was so popular because you didn't have to know how to read to understand the book every chapter of that book was illustrated that's so think about the think about the marketing genius of those people oh my gosh <laughs> right? yeah they, they basically wrote a book with illustrations saying, don't worry if they can't read it, they can follow along with the images and the images is what people remembered. And it's the images why people felt Uncle Tom was so kind. Uncle Tom was such a sweet man because every image was him with little Eva looking so genteel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I wanted to write a book where I told that story and then I basically, you know, Uncle has an ask. Beauty in a Box doesn't really have an ask. It's more like an exploration. Uncle does ask of the reader to come on the journey with me. Like, just, oh, just, just, just stick with me. Okay. I'm going, like, basically, I feel like you read that book. You have to keep saying, oh, she's going somewhere with this. Just, just, <laughs> just stick with her. Don't give up on the book because we're going to go somewhere. Right. And I think, I think it, it, by the time you get to the conclusion, I think I think it it's a satisfying read. I think does so it too. Everything you know, does it answer every question? No, I, that that wasn't my intention. My intention was only to 
say to you as a reader, after reading this, can you locate Uncle Tom? I think I can. Yeah. Mission accomplished. You did an amazing job with that book. I, you know, I've really loved reading your writing. I'm not uh, someone who has done a lot of writing historically, but I'm contemplating it in the future. And especially with my role sort of in the future of editing. And one of the panels that I saw that I attended live, I think, was during Black History Month. And you mentioned for you that writing is sometimes that you, oh, here's a direct quote, sometimes you write things that you couldn't even imagine saying. That's why I love writing, because mm -hmm. writing is the outward expression of your true inner self that sometimes gets stopped by speaking. When you write, you can really say it. And yeah. I wondered if you could share a bit about that for oh. any of the listeners who might be like me, primarily working in live theater or film or artistic environments who are interested in writing, uh, and also a voice coach. I'm a voice trainer and many of my colleagues are voice trainers. We are in the business of voice. And yet this writing quote really speaks as a deep truth to me that if I want to express at a deeper level, complexity of thought and worldview and perhaps have that idea, have a positive impact in society, that writing might be the way. And so I wondered if you could speak to that with all of your life experience and expertise as a researcher and scholar. Yeah, because it's only through the process of writing that you can be lead character, supporting character, and narrator all at the same time. <laughs> you can't do that when you're through speech. If you try to do that through speech, it's just going to come off like really either arrogant, like this person, you can't even do that through music. Imagine trying to play drums, piano and bass at the same time. Like people are going to be like, why are you hogging the stage? Why don't you hire a drummer? And so you could just play piano, right? You're trying to, why are you trying to act out every role in this play? Why don't you hire, people are going to think you're selfish. Or, or you're on the Muppets. You know, I think or I saw something Muppets, like that on the right? Muppets around 1985. <laughs> exactly. Whereas think about when you write. When you write, you can start. I, I think about my writing. I start through narration. All my books, academic, doesn't matter, nonfiction. There's always a, an element of I enter the chapter with a narration. I'm yes, giving a you story. A, a story, an overview mm -hmm. Here's what's happening. And then at some point I switch and it's about me. I'm telling you a personal narrative about myself and maybe how this connects to me. And maybe I did something at this time, right? And then now it's about me. I'm not narrating anymore. I and then that. at a certain point, it's like I'm I'm a secondary character experiencing something and I'm doing that through an example. I'm giving you an example in the writing mm -hmm. of something, like a case study. It's mm -hmm. only through writing where you could put all that. That's why the most powerful part of filmmaking for me is screenwriting. It's writing the script is the probably the most fulfilling part of the process. And then, yes, seeing it come to life is amazing. But being able to narrate first person, second person, and then also background, that is that takes a visionary mind. Where the lens goes, where the where the eye heads. You, you, yeah. you really have to. So that's why I love writing, because writing requires you to have vision because you kind of have to see. Whereas when you're when you're when it's a speech thing or a performative thing, the truth is that's about role playing. That's just playing a role. Mm -hmm. Roles are necessary. But to create the orchestra, you have to have a wide lens of vision. That's why if you think about uh, classical musicians, like they really were geniuses, Mozart, but Beethoven, all those people to create a symphony and understand the nuance and specificity of each instrument and their role in creating mm -hmm. that symphony sound. Just think about that. That overall... <laughs> aesthetic that overall journey that the listener would because go on. We, we as the listener we hear the overall sound we don't just hear 
the violins and the, and the cellos playing separately, we hear everything in sound. And yes. so to create that, it means you have to have a vision to see the wide scope and the little nuances. That's what writing is. It's the wide net and the little nuances and the details. So for me, writing is like the, it, it, it's just my outlet that I have chosen to express myself because it allows me to work on so many points of sight it, it, to me, it's writing is about vision. Like you, you have to see certain things and be able to articulate it in a way. And this is how I write. I write in a way that you could be any person off the street. You pick up that book. You have to be, for me, oh, you yes. have to understand it. Yes. This it, is it can't be important. how many books. Yeah. How many books do you read it? You're like, God, I don't get this. Like you're reading the book and you're confused because it seemed mm -hmm. like you would have had to have a PhD in the topic to even mm -hmm. access it. Yeah. I just, I just don't write like that. I write from anyone. That's why, you know, I can't tell you how many kinds of people have read beauty in a box who are not black women who are like, I loved that book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? To me, that is the ultimate compliment because it means you understood it. Yes. Even though you are not the subject position that I go through in the book, you understand it. And, and what is creativity, but at the end of the day, just expressions of understanding. You can Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like our, everything we create, it's because we're trying to get an understanding of ourselves and, and share that with others so that they get an understanding of people, of, of themselves. You know, that's why I love the arts. It, yeah, And that's why I, being in performance is just such an amazing fit because, I'm you know, happy for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what does it mean to, to perform? You know, it, it really just means to, to give people a, some version of a time, place, space event. You're just giving a version. It's like a lens. I think about how many movies have been done about Queen Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. The first I'm like mm -hmm. going yes. back how many movies how many mini series and you're like have you not told the story yeah i ha i honestly admittedly have not watched any or maybe we'll put an m in brackets in front of any many don't, I don't worry about that. Them. neither have i <laughs> yeah but not I've my thing attention, uh, but i've paid attention how mm -hmm. many stories can they tell of a person that nobody living today has ever met that's a really good question. Like, yeah. It's fascinating to me. And what it speaks to is the fact of it's not the story that's changing. It's the lens. Mm. It's the vision. It's the perspective. And what I realize through the work that I do and all the things that I seem like I'm producing, every time I sit down and I'm writing, that's really all that I'm bringing to a topic. Uh, ends, my perspective, my vision. And then because I'm just like a, a self-aware person, I bring my experiential knowledge too. Absolutely. And, and and all that is kind of just, it's like a gumbo. Writing is like a gumbo. In fact, I said it to <laughs> in, um, just this morning we were talking. When I write, I compare myself to um, the artist working on a canvas, a portrait. Yes. And, and if you think about the, the portrait, uh, it, it doesn't have to be a portrait, but they're working on a huge canvas. Every artist has a different approach to that canvas. Some will start in the middle and work outward, right? Some will start at the edges and then work inward. Some will start at one corner and then expand diagonally. And the same thing, the top corner and then expand downward. Mm -hmm. The end result is the same. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's my process i don't care where i start it's a canvas every time i write it's a different process interesting results will be the same so for me because i let go of nitpicking my process some people are like i have to do it this way and i have to make all these oh my gosh just just do it i yeah. i have a I have a Nike attitude. Just do it because the end result is going to be the same. So just don't get too caught up in your process.
Yes. And I guess over time, after you've written five, 10, you know, 15, 20 books, whoever the person is that's writing them, uh, uh, potentially through that iteration, a kind of general process might emerge that is one's own. Would you agree? No, because I'm writing my third book now and, and my approach to this book is so different. I'm shocked at myself. Oh my this God. Is, this is partly where my comments are coming from. I'm, I'm having an awareness now, having written two and I, and, and that written two under different sets of circumstances too. And the process for each one was so different. And wow. here I am again, writing a third and it bears no similarities to the second or the first. Like, wow. This, pro first of all, I'm learning my lesson, academic writers, I'm building the bi bibliography at the same time I write. <laughs> a gift. <laughs> okay. That is a gift of awareness to do it at the same time. I've never done that before. I've always at the end trying to find all the sources together. And I don't use like the, those other sources, the, the, the automated stuff, because they always make mistakes. So what a gift. The second thing that I'm doing that is so different to my other books is that um, my ability, having, having done so much over the last 10 years, my ability to self edit is just so much stronger now mm. that I am able to get the work to a place that I know when I deliver it to my editor, we're talking about, they're giving comments. They're not giving massive rewrites. Nice. My other iterations, they required a lot of heavy building at the beginning. And so I learned through that process to always get the work for me to a point where it's done when I can't say anything else, right? I've looked at it so many times and it's also done when I read it and I don't get stopped. So when I, through the process of writing, when I read a chapter and the chat, this is going to sound funny to some people, I read the chapter and it feels distant to me, like almost like I didn't write it. That's when I know it's done. <laughs> interesting thank you so much for sharing that that's when I'm like yep this is ready to go to somebody else because I I'm not getting stopped in it and it's flowing in a way where I don't remember the process of really writing it and struggling I don't remember the struggle as much then I know that it's done when I'm still reading it and I'm like oh no this doesn't fit here and oh no I'm not making sense I keep working at it. My other books, I didn't have that awareness. It was much harder to, to recognize that. And I always needed the editor to like say, oh, you need to add this and you add this. And so now when I'm writing, actually I'm writing a, one of my chapters now where there's a, there's a part of the chapter that I, I, I thought I would have gotten to two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't gotten it to it yet. And I'm shocked at myself. I'm like, why haven't I gotten to this point? Because I realized there's so many things I have to explain before I get to that part. Because if I just plop that part, I realize now having written two books, the reader's not going to understand. Oh. So I'm, I'm, I'm consciously thinking of the reader. That is so beautiful. You yeah. are. You're thinking about the reader, as you had said, sort of like a tour guide who wants to lay out a beautiful journey where you're anticipating what could the questions be that they might ask and how can yeah. I make sure that I've woven those in so that yeah. it's, yeah, accessible to any. And that's exactly it. Like I, I have that level of accessibility so front and center. Oh, I love that. I'm, writing a, I'm also writing a topic that this is the book on Canada's history of blackface that is so challenging and so many layers. And it's not just about race and racism. It's actually also about immigrants. It's an immigration story. It's a mm. territorial story. It's also a story about mass entertainment and money being exchanged mm. across territories and mm. it's also about nostalgia <laughs> right mm -hmm. and it's a nostalgia that it actually keeps changing over the centuries so there was actually a nostalgia in the 18th century for the 17th and I have to explain that how am I going to explain that and then there was a nostalgia in the 19th for the 18th but how do you explain that so it's like I'm just so cognizant in this process of the magnitude of the book that I've taken on to write. And I think this is the first book that I have a conscious awareness that this really is a category setting book. Like this Say really- Say that again, is, that it's a- It's a, a category, category setting. 
this category this category doesn't actually exist anywhere the beauty books they existed the this book this book the way that i'm writing it even though blackface books they exist in america there's no book like this i am excited the reason i know that is because i've read everything i've read the corpus (laughs) i'm using the corpus to write this book so i know that there is nothing like this that has ever been written by a person who looks like me, ever. I am thrilled for you, Cheryl, that you're writing this book, yes. that you're you know, setting aside the time this summer to continue to work on it. And um, I hope you'll keep me posted as it moves towards publication. I will get a copy the minute it is available. Yeah. I mean, and, I uh, think this is one of those books just based on so many years, I think people are actually going to be waiting for it. Like, I think people are waiting for it. Like they, when this book comes out, it's going to be like, oh, this is what she's been working on for 10 years. Yes. And I should say this book is actually paired to the documentary that you mentioned. So the film that I'm co-producing, it's called Blackface Nation. That's going to be released next year. It's, it's, it's the, it's the, you know, addendum to the book. It's Mm. not, the same thing but it's basically going to be like the prelude to the book because it's based on the research fascinating in the book i'm not doing this film on my own i, I i'm working with pink moon studios a, a toronto-based film production company they are the experts okay they make films great i'm, I'm not necessarily a filmmaker but i am a producer <laughs> okay <laughs> that title i definitely claim after this experience For sure and it's just been an amazing experience to, you know, have started with a topic that was so taboo 10 years ago. Mm. People didn't even mention the word, right? And you go into mm. archives and even in the libraries, they didn't even want to show you any of the of the material because they were embarrassed or they didn't know. They want to know, what are you looking at this for? <laughs> oh, my like, yeah, like they would ask questions like, is this for a project? Like really like strange questions because they, they would look and see what the content was that you were looking at. And, oh, you know, wow. it's a really like um, offensive images, you name it. I like to think I've played a role of taking this thing out of the shadows. Good for you. So it's another, I feel like it's just another thing that I've done. <laughs> like I just busted open the door on a topic. Yes. That- People just did not want to talk about because I'm not the first Canadian scholar to write about blackface or to see it. I'm not. I don't claim being the first. But what I do, and it's the same thing with beauty culture, what I do is I say, okay, somebody obviously has already opened this door. I'm trying to invite people over and have a party. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want to have a party on this topic. And I want to put the big speakers up, <laughs> open yeah. all the windows, tell the media to come. Oh, like yes. that's what I do. I actually just turn the volume up on things. I, yes. I'm not the first person to write about them. And because I turn the volume up so loud, I get credited as being the first. But I always credit people who did this work before me. Mm-hmm. I love that you're building on the work that's already been done and i'm excited to see where this all leads it sounds like next year then the book and the and the documentary may come out around the same time (laughs) no the documentary will definitely come out first (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah yeah because the book is going to need a you know several rounds of editing and but what we will have i hope by the time the film is released is the book cover and (laughs) pre-orders of the book will be ready to go yeah. I'll, I'll be one of those pre-orders for sure. Well, yes. thank you so much. So let me know, is there anything else you wanted to share? Uh, no, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, no. I, the only thing to share is, you know, everything I've said here is, is actually not, um, it, it, it's, it's, it, I was going to say this, but you know, the truth is it is an, it is an extraordinary story. <laughs> I'm beginning to realize that so many things that I've experienced in life are just so extraordinary. Like if you had known me when I was a little kid, the, just the circumstances I was growing up in and some of the things that happened when I was at school, it's like, you know, I'm just, I'm shocked by myself. I'm shocked by life and, 
and I and I think that's what I bring to this. It's like I, I'm genuinely shocked by my own ability to have developed as a person, to keep developing as a person, to to be willing to share mm-hmm. a lot of my experiences in a public forum like this and not see it as like my magic sauce that I can't tell anyone because then they're going to steal it from me or I I just you know I just feel really grateful that through the process of everything that I've lived through I'm still me I'm still myself when I talk to my mother she recognizes me I I love that you shared all that. And, you know, to quote you from one of the panels, you said, when you put your story out there, it helps others to put their story out as well. When you share, you free others to share. And so I want to thank you for your generosity of spirit through this podcast and also through all of the great work that you're doing. It is inspiring, to say the least. It is really just a beautiful merging of life, creativity, intellect, rigor, and vision for the kind of work that you want to do that can have a huge impact in society. So thank you so much for spending this time with me today. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. So thank you so much. If you want to learn more about any of the resources we spoke about in this episode, please check out our show notes on voicingcreativity.com where you can also email or send us a voice memo with your feedback at podcast at voicingcreativity.com. You can follow us at Voicing Podcast on Twitter, and you can tweet about the podcast by using the hashtag Voicing Creativity Podcast. You can also rate and review this show at Apple Podcasts. The Voicing Creativity Podcast was produced on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. The Voicing Creativity podcast is supported by the University of Winnipeg Research Office, the University of Winnipeg Human Research and Ethics Board, and the University of Winnipeg Faculty of Arts, and by research assistant Jordan Berkman. A special thank you to Dave Peterson of Ross River Dana Territory. The podcast theme song is Beauty Is All by Ketza from the album Creative Center. You can download more of their work on freemusicarchive.org and from their website, ketsamusic.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out our other Season 1 episodes. Thank you for listening to the Voicing Creativity Podcast. Thank you.